You know, when we sin, we have two options. Confess and repent or cover it up. Myron digs into one of the greatest cover-up stories in history and shares what we can learn from the moment Joseph's brothers devise a plan to cover up what happened to their younger brother. Let's take a listen. Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Good? It's good to see you. My name is Myron Jellison. I'm the Next Gen Pastor. If I haven't met you, just want to introduce myself and welcome you and glad that you're joining us. And so we've been going through the entire book of Genesis from the very beginning to the last chapter, and we've been going chapter by chapter and, and really diving in deep. And so today we'll be in chapter 37. If you've got your Bibles and want to follow along or put your mobile, mobile device on Do Not Disturb and pull the, uh, uh, the uh, Bible app up, that would be great. And you can follow follow along. And so today we're going to dive back into the family that God chose to be his chosen people, to be set apart from the world, to bring his message and to bring reconciliation of all peoples back to God. And he chose these people and we've watched this family be the most dysfunctional family, I think, of all time. And you might be thinking, you don't know my family. Well, you're right. But for most of us, Our family's dysfunction pales in comparison to the level of dysfunction that exists in this family. And we're going to dive in and we're going to see some more dysfunction through the lineage of Abraham and and down through Isaac and and now into Jacob and then into his kids. It gets even crazier. So Genesis is about to pump the brakes. We're going to slow down and we're going to take the next 13 chapters and cover one guy's life. Literally 25% of this book is now going to be dedicated to one single person, and his name is Joseph. You might be familiar with Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors. 13 chapters, 25%. Think about the significance of this, because creation, God who was and is and the creator God, got about two chapters to create everything, and this guy is going to get 13 chapters more than anybody else in the book of Genesis. It's a big deal. And so why would this happen? And so Joseph is someone who we are told to model our lives after. There's two people in the Old Testament that we can model our lives after because they got it right majority of the time. Not perfect, but they are examples, and it's Joseph and it's Daniel. Now Daniel, we got to put an asterisk by Daniel because Daniel wrote his own book. So if Myron got to write the book of Myron, it's going to be the highlight reel, of course, right? But so we got to kind of exclude Daniel because if someone else wrote the book of Myron, it'd probably sell more copies because it's got the dysfunction in there. And so someone else, Moses, is writing the life of Joseph for 13 chapters, and he is somebody that we are to model our life after. He's not perfect. We'll see that. He'll make mistakes. I'm not sure if it's sin, but he does contribute to the dysfunction but he's someone to model his life after. And so the Bible is going to say, hey, let's slow down. Let's hone in on this guy. Let's unpack his story and look at someone who did the right thing. And look how God interacted with people who were doing the right thing and interacted with his family through this time. And we're going to learn a lot about Joseph over the next, I don't know how many weeks, but 13 chapters, 20 years of history in 13 chapters. We'll learn a lot about God. We'll learn a lot about Joseph. And really, I think we'll learn a lot about ourselves in this. And so... We're going to dive in to Joseph's life for the remainder of the book of Genesis. So Genesis 37 is where we introduce them. Some of you might be thinking, well, Myron, we've been going chapter by chapter. You forgot Genesis 36. 
And you're right, I did. We're just going to skip it. We're just going to not read it. And you might be thinking, well, is it all Bible important every chapter? Yes, it is. But Genesis 36 is this. It's 40-some verses of a lineage, which means this person had this son and this son and begot this son and begot this son and literally just list a bunch of names that I would have a tough time pronouncing. And there's not a lot that we can pull out of it for life application. But here's why 36 is important. It would give us historical and archaeological dating and generational and kind of time. And we can understand how the descendants of Abraham and and all the people groups that came from this line and where they inhabited. It's important. And yes, you should study it. And yes, you can see a lot of truth and good things out of that. But I'm not going to go through it because you'd fall asleep through verse 7 because it's literally the same thing over and over and over again. But here we go. We're going to go to 37. Read 36 on your own. Study that. Verse 1 of 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, that's important, remember, 17 years old Joseph was, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, this is a, not the way you really want your story to start. If you're going to be the hero, a man to be modeled after, we get introduced to him as a tattletale, a little 17-year-old twerp who's ratting out his brothers about their business dealings of the family business. And so Joseph, he's got, uh, or, or yeah, Joseph is one of 12 sons of Jacob. Right, so Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the 11th. There's one younger, Benjamin. And so he's a 17-year-old. The other 10 are older than him. And they're off running the family business. Right, he's got so much uh, sheep and, and, and a herd and livestock and, and resources. It's a big family business, a huge group of people. And these 10 sons, and even Joseph, are running the family business. And so I'm sure they come in and give dad reports all the time. And dad's like, okay, give me the quarterlies, you know, give me the profit loss margins or give me the statements and give me the account balances, you know, show me how well business is going. And I'm sure the older boys are like, dad, Burthen's up. It's good, man. We're able to keep the wild animals at bay. You know, we're not losing a lot of the young. We've been fertilizing the fields well. The grazing is amazing. We found a good source of water. Dad, all is well. And little Joey over here just is like, "Um, hey, dad. (laughs) They've been having some women at night at camp from those villages out there, and they've been drinking a little bit too much. And we did have a few wild animals attack, kill some of the young, and the builder's like, shut up, dude. Like, what are you doing? Why are you, like, who do you think you are ratting us out? Like, we're doing pretty good overall. But Joseph comes and gives him, dad, a bad report about the other brothers. And can you just feel the tension already in this family? The dysfunction that's existing right now in this family. Did you have one of those growing up? Did you have a Joseph growing up? In your family? If not, you probably were to Joseph, weren't you? Or you were always, you always riding on everybody else. And I know, I relate to Joseph because I was the youngest of six boys. Not, not 12, but I was the youngest of six. And I was the baby. I got, I got coddled a little bit. And so, yeah, I knew exactly how to get under my brother's skin. And he's just probably getting under their skin and uh, being a little tattletale twerp. So that's, we're introduced to him, the hero. Not a great introduction. Now, here goes verse 3. Now, Israel. Okay, so Israel is now the name of Jacob. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, and he has 12 sons. They will become the 12 tribes of Israel. You might be familiar with that. So Israel and Jacob, they're used interchangeably. So I may say Israel, I may say Jacob through this 
uh, passage of Scripture, but Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him, or some translations, a coat of many colors as we've been familiar with. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, underline, hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Here's the relational dynamic of the family. You know, I'm sure Jacob thought he was done having sons, because let's be honest, after you have 10 boys, <laughs> you might be thinking, I'm done. Like, that's a lot of boys to try to raise. And there was daughters mixed in there, too. So he's had 10 sons at this point. He's old. He's in his wrinkly age. He's probably past his prime. He's like, you know what? I'm good. But guess what? God gives him another son. And, and Jacob's in his retirement age. He's got 10 boys taking care of the family business. He's spending more time at home. And he's got little Joey to hang out with. And he's probably more fond of him because the quality time he gets to spend with him at home in his old wrinkly retirement age, past his prime, didn't think he was going to get a boy. Now he's got daddy's little boy. And he loved him more than the others. It's almost like dad called a family meeting and said, hey, guys, just so you know, like <laughs> that I love this guy more than all of you. I've made him this really ex or accentuated, beautiful coat of many colors, and I'm going to put it on him, and I didn't get you nothing. Just him. I love him more. It's like he's making it the most obvious he could possibly make it that there's favoritism towards Joseph, and all the other brothers hate him because of this. It's so evident there's favoritism in this home, and you might think, how could Israel do this? How could Jacob do this? Well, think back to his dad. He met the Jacob's dad. There was favoritism there, wasn't there? Between Isaac and Esau, right? There, were, there was favoritism to where, uh, you know, um, where dad kind of liked Esau. Esau was the, you know, hairy, burly dude that was like the hunter, fisher, gatherer, and also probably the four-year varsity letterman all four years of his high school career. And like, he was just the man, right? And so dad was drawn to him, but then, uh, you know, Jacob was more drawn to the mom. So he saw it in his family. And let's go back another generation to, to Abraham, where he had Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac kicked out Ishmael and said, no, I'm choosing Isaac. So there was favoritism from granddad and then dad. And so now it's being represented and manifested in Jacob among his kids as well, because he's seen it modeled in his life. And a bad family pattern, hear me out, is not an excuse for you to continue a bad family pattern in your household. And you might go with the justification, well, that's the way dad always did it. But the reality is, is you didn't like the way dad did it. You didn't like that he was always absent. You didn't like that he was there. You didn't like the rules of your household. You didn't like the way the disciplinary action was handed out. You didn't like the way the favoritism existed in your household. And let's be honest, it probably existed in your household when you were growing up. And so a bad family pattern is not a justification for us to continue a bad family pattern. It's got to stop with us. Another sidebar here, parents. <laughs> I'm in this stage where I got young kids and they're starting to develop their personalities and their interests and their skills. And there's a tendency, and I don't know, you might be more holy than me, but there's a tendency in my heart to be drawn to one over the other. And there's got to be a, an intentionality among us as parents to not be drawn to and show overt favoritism to one kid because we more naturally connect with them. 
You might be thinking, you know, he's daddy's little man. You know, he's just like me. He's athletic. He's gifted. He's talented. And I get to share experiences with him. I'm living vicariously through him, through his experiences. And you're always taking him and leaving the mom and the, and the others or, or with, the, with the girl, like the mom. You're taking this daughter out all the time and hanging out with her. Like there's something about our human heart that is drawn to one of our kids maybe more than the others when we have multiple kids. There's something inside of us. And some of you are like, no, Myron, I love all my kids equally. Well, good for you. The rest of us, it's hard. It's hard. Because, you know, the one is, is just like you. Maybe the one's so much like you that you butt heads with them because the world ain't big enough for two of you. You have that child where you're just butting heads all the time. And so you're drawn to the others and not that one. And good parents know, and parents hear me out, if there's special attention to one, there needs to be special attention to the others. If there's a date night with one, there's a date night with others. If there's this thing you're doing with this one, make sure you're doing something special and set apart for this one too. Because every good parent knows if you come home with ice cream, you're cutting that thing into three equal thirds, people. You bring a cookie home, cut that thing as best you can into three equal thirds, and guess what? One piece is going to be a little bit bigger, and whoever speaks up wants the bigger one, say, no, you get the smaller one. Just keep your mouth shut, and you got the bigger one. Like, Cut that thing into thirds. If one kid's got a nickname, they all got to have nicknames. And the nickname's got to be equal. It can't be like my little girl, sweetie pie, little man, and stupid. Like, they're going to they're gonna figure that out. They're going to know that these two have favoritism and this one doesn't. It's got to be equal. And so good parents know that we can't show favor. Now, it's okay to be drawn to one. Hear me out. It's okay to be drawn to one. Just don't show it. Don't let it be evident in your home because it'll permeate and it'll cause dysfunction in your life. And here's the thing about the dysfunction that exists when there's favoritism is that they're not really mad at the mom or dad for favoritism. Who are they mad at? Each other. They're mad at each other. They're jealous of one another. And we see this. And here's the thing about a father's approval that I think is so profound that we need to wake up as a country and as a, as a people. When there is the absence of a father's affirmation over a child, there's a detriment to the child's well-being. And so we got to be careful, dads, especially, that we, we give all of our kids equal affirmation and attention to build them up and to be the role models and the good example of what a father should look like so we can imitate our heavenly father and they can see their heavenly father through the way our, the earthly father loves and serves and gives them affirmation. Joseph's definitely the favorite. It's overt. And Joseph knows he's the favorite. It's obvious he knows he's the favorite. And Joseph doesn't help himself out. Here we go, verse 5. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. Again, they hated him more. And he said to them, listen to my dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, and suddenly my sheaf rose up, stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him. Again, it says they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Now, I got to give Joey a little bit of grace here. He's 17. He's an immature teenager doing immature, dumb teenager stuff. Like he's got the favorite jacket. He knows he's spoiled daddy's little boy. But how did he expect this to go? Like, Joseph, what do you think's going to happen when you know they hate you? It's evident. 
and you're going to share this kind of dream with them. It shows his immaturity. And here's one piece of advice. The first sign of wisdom is knowing when to say and what to say. That's the first sign of maturity and wisdom, of knowing when to say or what to say and when to say it is the first step in becoming wise. Everything you think, you should not just immediately say. You should not. You know that gets you in a lot of trouble, especially in siblings. <laughs> and, you, and he knows. Joseph knows exactly what to say. He's an immature teen- teenager. He's doing dumb stuff. And you think he would have learned by the reaction of his brothers and the faces he probably got and the threats that he got, like, I'm going to beat you up, you little, you know. You think he would have learned. He didn't. Verse 9. <laughs> he had another dream. And he told this to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. It's ironic that there's 11 stars and there's 11 brothers. Sun and moon, kind of like father and mother, kind of ironic, bowing down to me. When he told this, his father, he told it to his father as well as his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your father and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. Now it's not just hatred, it's jealousy. But his father kept the matter in mind. You see, dad, he's like, he, dad's discrediting. What do you mean? You think that's going to happen? Boy, you're, you're speaking some crazy stuff. But why didn't father, why didn't Jacob, why did he keep it in his mind? If you remember, Jacob knows about dreams. God has revealed himself and spoke to Jacob in a dream of how to lead his family and where to go and where to take his people group. So Jacob is familiar with dreams and just maybe Jacob is like, yeah, maybe God is doing something with my boy here. As immature and arrogant and not emotionally intelligent and wise at all and sharing these dreams, just maybe God is doing something in and through my boy here. He doesn't dismiss it. And this is the first time we see God showing up in dreams and not speaking directly, but using images and pictures that need interpretation. And so he shares the dreams. The hatred is grown. The jealousy is magnified. Story goes on, verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. If you guys remember about Shechem, last chapter, I guess chapter 34, Shechem is where their sister got raped. And it's where uh, Simeon and Levi convinced all of the guys to get circumcised. And while they were still sore a couple days later, they go in and totally plunder and murder every guy in that village. And so they brought shame on the name of God's people there. And it was a crazy, you can go back and listen to it on our website or our podcast and listen to the uh, chapter 34. But like they're going back near Shechem and daddy's probably like, hey, we don't have good report with the people at Shechem. I got to check in on them. So they're out near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. He's like, hey, go do a well check and see what's going on. Make sure they're behaving themselves near Shechem. And he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. I know you'll bring me a, a true word. You've already proved yourself a tattletale. You'll tell me the truth. Bring a word back to me. So he sent him out, sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. 
But when they saw him in the distance, his brothers see him walking across the valley. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer boy, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and we'll throw him one of these cisterns and we'll say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of these dreams. We'll show him. We'll show little tattletale boy. We'll show him. We're going to make sure these dreams don't come true. Get rid of him. And they plot to kill him. This takes the family dysfunction to a whole new level. I don't know about your family dysfunction, but I don't know if anyone's ever tried to plot and conspire against you to murder you. I don't know. Maybe. That's crazy. But that's the level that's happening right now, the level of hatred and jealousy that exists because of the misallocation of affirmation by a father causes this crazy dysfunction. Siblings are trying to kill him. And this is where, and this is where the Sunday school story version for me breaks down. Because when I heard, when I, when I grew up and I knew the story inside and out, I've heard it a thousand times. Here's how I picture the story happening when Joseph tells his dreams. You know, he comes down as a young boy, footy pajamas, zipper all the way up to the neck. There's 12 bulls of, you know, lucky charms on the table that mom put out. And he wakes up a little groggy. Guys, you're never going to believe my dream. And he just shares a dream as a young boy, but he's not a young boy. He's a 17-year-old. His 10 older brothers are probably 30, 40, 50 years old. They're grown men with the capacity to do some horrific things. We've seen that. Simeon and Levi plundering a whole village of the males. And then Reuben, he's the oldest. And you know what he did? We, we, we talked about this a few chapters back. He slept with one of his dad's wives and dad knew about it. And why would he have that kind of flex? He's like, you know what? I'm the alpha dog now. Dad, you're old and wrinkly. There's a new man in town. And you ain't going to do nothing about it. And no one's going to confront Reuben about it. They're just like, okay, yeah, sure, Reuben, whatever, man. He's intimidating. He's got to be a big man of stature and figure. He's a bad dude. These are the kind of dudes that he's ticking off with his dream telling, with his arrogance and immaturity and lack of wisdom and self-awareness and self-control. These dudes can kill him, probably with their bare hands. And that's where the story broke down for me. I thought they were just young little kids. No, these are grown men. And so Joseph is walking out to come find them, and he's wearing the coat. Like, why would you wear that coat out on this journey? And they see it and go, boy, I know you ain't coming out here to work because you ain't getting that thing dirty. There ain't no way. So you're coming out here to tattle on us. Let's kill him. Let's get him. Let's get him. Let's just take him out right now. And they plot to kill him. They're going to throw him in a hole. They're going to make it look like a wild animal did it. And then a, an unlikely hero pops onto the scene. His name is Reuben. <laughs> he doesn't quite pull it off, but he tries. Verse 21, when Reuben heard the plot from the brothers to kill him, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. He had the plan of like, don't kill him, put him in the hole. When you guys calm down, I'll go get the boy, take him back. All's will be well. So this is the plan. This is what they agreed to. This was the compromise. So when Joseph came, verse 23, to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him in the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. I give Reuben half credit. He's got the right motives. He's got the right heart behind it, but he doesn't have the right action plan. And I think that Reuben's motives, he's kind of convicted because 
if word ever gets back to pop that this happened and went down, who's he going to hold responsible? The oldest, Reuben. The one that should know better. The one that should be able to convince the other brothers, we're not going to kill our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. We're not going to do it. And so Reuben's like, if this, if this gets back to dad, it's all coming down on me. I got to figure out a plan. And if anybody could turn the minds of the brothers, it probably would be Reuben. Again, he slept with his, 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 his dad's wife and got away with it. And no one's going to mess with Reuben. He could influence him. If anybody could pull it off, it would be him. But I think in the process of Reuben trying to convince them to go a different way, their faces, their reactions, the crowd persuaded Reuben to fall short on a good execution of a plan. He should have. This is what Reuben should have done. Reuben should have met the boy out in the valley. He said, guys, we're not going to do this, but let me go talk to the boy. I'll meet him off in the valley and say, Joseph, go home. Just go home. We hate you. You know we hate you. What are you doing out here? You're just coming out here to tile on us again. Just go home to dad. Stay at home where you belong. Let us take care of the work out here. Just go home. The boys are plotting to kill you. You better, you better get, scat, get out of here. And if you don't, I'll turn them loose on you. Go home. But he failed to do the right thing at the right time. And the reality is, is for you and I, when we fail to do the right thing at the right time, there's no do-over. Reuben's not going to get another chance. He's not going to get a do-over. He's not going to get a chance to do the right thing. And so when he failed to do the right thing in the right time with the right motives, but the wrong action plan, he's going to live with regret for the next 20 years over the lie and the conspiracy and the plot that these brothers end up going through. And Reuben knows he should have did something different, but he will not get another chance. And so you and I, when we're faced with doing the right thing at the right time, we got to do it because we may not get another chance. And we will have to live with the consequences of our inaction and disobedience to what God is saying to do. We will walk through that. And for the next 20 years, Reuben's going to walk with this, I'm sure. And so in your marriages, in your family dynamics, in your relationship with your spouse, go, hey, we got to do the right thing right now. We got to come clean. I know it's hard. We got to have the hard conversation with your kids, wherever the, how much distance there is or how much, you know, favoritism has been shown. You got to call it out and do the right thing and have the hard conversations now, because if you fail to do so now, you might not get another chance and you'll walk with the shame and the guilt of that. And because of the crowd, Reuben can't pull it off. And how often, because of the crowd of culture and our society, do we fail to do the right thing at the right time when God spoke it, he said it, and he's calling us to it. And if we fail to do it, we'll live with the consequences. He can't pull it off. Reuben can't pull it off. But he did get him to compromise. <laughs> he got him thrown into the cistern without being killed. And now a cistern, in my mind, again, this is where the, the Sunday school story for me, I'm thinking it's a stone veneer, gabled roof, wood crank, bucket kind of well. No, it's not what this is. That's the Jack and Jill kind of well. This is a cistern. This is a massive cavern in the ground, like a wine bottle, small hole at the top, and they dig this massive cavern underneath. Because in the Middle East, it didn't rain all the time, and the, water, the ground is not so porous. So when they would get rain, they strategically placed these cisterns to catch all the runoff to house that water so they would have access to it in between the rain. And they put a small hole at the top so that the sun would not evaporate. It would, it would slow down the evaporation of that water. And it's a big, these things are massive. And Joseph, as he's being thrown into this hole, I'm sure he's like, 
I'm a dead man. There ain't no way I'm getting out of this. There's no ladder. There's no rope already there. You would bring your own vessel and draw your own water. And without help, Joseph is going to be a dead man. And Joseph probably sees his life going, God, I thought there was a plan. I thought this dream was a plan for my life. And we see it just crumble around him. And he's probably wondering, what is happening to my life? This is not the way I pictured my life to go. And for us, that's not the way I pictured my marriage to go. It's not the way I pictured my relationship with my kids to go. This is not the way I pictured my career going. This is not the way I pictured my family dynamics playing out. And Joseph finds himself in a pit. And so the brothers, after they throw him in the cistern, they go have a meal, verse 25. They sat down to eat their meal, and they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. They were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers over dinner, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Finally, another voice of reason. Reuben couldn't get it done. Maybe Judah's going to get it done. If we think about Judah, right, he is the one in which the line of the priesthood will come through for the people of Israel. And also, Judah is the line that Jesus will come through one day. And so if there is going to be a righteous voice of reason, wouldn't we expect it to be Judah? He speaks up, hey man, what benefit is it going to be if we kill his brother and cover up his blood? Again, we see the right motives. Wrong action by Judah. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, verse 27, and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. Again, another compromise. The plan has adjusted again. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now the Ishmaelites are the descendants of Ishmael. You remember Isaac and Ishmael, the two sons of Abraham? That's the other side of the family that kind of got booted out, kicked out, the redheaded stepchild kind of thing. That's the other side. That's the in-laws, so to speak, side of the family. And they sold uh, Joseph to them, and they're on their way down to Egypt, and then he's now a slave to the Ishmaelites. Sold him for 20 shekels of silver, which is just shy of the amount that Jesus gets, will get sold for when Jesus gets sold, sold out. Kind of ironic. And, and 30 shekels of silver would have been the going rate for a good, mature male slave at that time. They sold him cheap. We just want you to solve our problems. Get this guy out of here. We hate him. And so they solve their problems. They have a clearer conscience because they're not actually going to kill him. They just want him out of their geographical location, take him all the way to Egypt. No longer our problem. They solved it. And so, verse 29. Apparently, Reuben didn't get invited to dinner. He didn't know about the change of plans. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes and went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Where can I turn now? He didn't know about this plan adjustment. He was still planning on going back and saving him and making it all right. And when he returns and finds the boy not there, he tears his clothes. And tearing your clothes is a sign of distress and mourning, crying out, why? Why is this happening? And he goes to his brothers, what can I do now? Where can I turn now? And the reality is for Reuben, there's nothing he can do now. Because he failed to do the right thing at the right time. And there's nothing he can do now. There's nowhere you can turn. The consequences will play out because of your inaction, because of your disobedience. And not doing what you know was the right thing to do. 
And yet God will redeem. He is a redeemer. He can redeem. Spoiler alert. (laughs) 20 years later, God's going to redeem all this. He's going to redeem the family. He's going to reconcile everybody back together. Joseph's going to be fine. The dreams will become true. Yes, God can redeem. But here's the thing about our disobedience. We have to walk through the consequences of our disobedience. It plays out in our life. God is not obligated to remove the consequences of our sin and of our disobedience. And sometimes people want to go, well, is God punishing me because of my sin? No, he's not. You brought it on yourself. You know what the right thing is to do. Our our world knows that there is a God and there's a standard of morality and right and wrong and commands that we were meant to live by inside of his design, but we just disregard that and want to do our own thing and do it our way. And there are consequences of our sin and disobedience that we have to walk through that God is not obligated to remove. He's not punishing you. He's allowing you to live with the consequences of your decision. And here's what we got to do when we have sin, when we have disobedience in our life. There's two options. The first one is we confess and repent. You confess it. You say, I blew it. I messed up. I did wrong. I I came up short. I'm sorry. Confess it. Call it out for what it really is and repent and say, I'm no longer going to continually do what I've been doing. Because it's led me to guilt and shame and it's disrupted my joy and my peace and satisfaction. I'm tired of it. I'm going to repent. I'm going to call it out. I'm going to confess it. And here's what happens in, in 1 John 1, 9. says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. He will purify you from the unrighteousness. He will transform you from the inside out. Sin will become distasteful in your mouth. When you truly confess and truly repent and invite him in, you're not strong enough to do it on your own. You might think you are, but that's why it keeps coming. That's why it keeps creeping up. That's why the temptation keeps overtaking you because you haven't fully given your life over to the one who can purify you from the unrighteousness. And our response is out of obedience. I will follow you. I will do whatever you ask. Come and transform me from the inside out. That's the first option when we have sin. Call it out. The second one is cover it up. That's the second option. And that seems to be our default as humans, doesn't it? Seems to be our default. Where we're like, you know, we're just going to downplay this. It's not really that big of a deal. It's just watching a few videos here and there on my computer or browsing social media and looking at these models that are half-dressed. Like, it's just, it's it's infrequent. It's not that big a deal. You know, I just have a few drinks here and there when I get really down after a long week, you know, but it's every week. There might be a concern there. Like, it's not all the time, and we just kind of cover it up and pretend like it's not that big of a deal. This is the greatest cover-up of all time, by the way, I think, in in history. The level of conspiracy and cover-up that these guys went through, which is the default, I think, in our human heart, to pretend, cover it up, and act like it's not that big a deal. And the reality is, is that's the biggest form of hypocrisy I see in our life. To where you claim to know Jesus, you claim to want to follow him, you claim to be a Christian, but yet you hide different aspects of your life that are in rebellion or disobedience to what God is calling all of us to. And you put on and you act, you come to church, you read your word, you post on Instagram scriptures, you act like you've got it all together, but really you've got something that you've been hiding and covering up. And that's been your, your default. And it's eating at you, isn't it? It's undermining your life and your joy and your happiness and your satisfaction. 
It's the greatest cover-up of all time. So we got to confess and repent. He'll forgive us and purify us. And we got to stop covering it up. Because we think that we're so good that we can cover it up. But the reality is, it's coming out. You'll get found out eventually, one way or another. And so why don't you go ahead and be proactive and get found out because you decided to get found out? And bring it to the light and find true healing and freedom and redemption for whatever you've been covering up. Verse 31, the greatest cover-up of all time takes place. (laughs) Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the the robe in the blood. Then they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, hey, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Are you kidding me? Who else is wearing a robe that says favorite kid on the back? Daddy knows exactly whose robe this is. It's a parent's worst nightmare, isn't it? Middle of the night, you get the phone call and say, hey, I need you to come do, I need you to come do an identi- identity verification for me. Or it's a knock on the door the morning after and say, hey, I'm so sorry. It's a parent's worst nightmare. It's his favorite boy. He sees the coat. Of course, he recognizes it. Do you see how messed up this scene is? Verse 33, he recognized the coat and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes in mourning, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him. All his sons came to comfort him. Remember that. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until the day or till I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Jacob's like, I'm taking this to my grave. I'm not willing to deal with this in the right, right ways. I'm so broken. I'm so hurt because of what's been done and what's transpired. I'm going to take this one to my grave. You guys ever been there? You ever thought about that? This secret, I'm taking it with me. This guilt, this shame, this thing, this instance, this happening, what happened in the past in 1990, I'm taking this with me. No one's going to know about it. Extreme grief, extreme mourning. And all the sons try to come in and comfort him. Hey, Dad, hey, I know you're really upset, but is there anything I can do for you, Dad? No, get out of here. Next son, Dad, we kept coming in. Dad, is there something, anything we can do for you, Dad? Can we help you in any way? Do you see how whacked out this situation is? Not one of them comes clean. They have the solution to his mourning, all of them, but none of them comes clean, and they allow their father to, to, to go through this extreme mourning when he didn't have to. It shows you the level of disrespect that the boys have to this father because of the affirmation he had to Joseph. You see the damage that is done by a father who doesn't show equal treatment of his boys? Same is true in our lives. It causes dysfunction to an exponential degree. Not one of them speak up. How could they? How could they not? I'm like, how could they not share like, daddy's not really dead? And then it makes me think about my life in our world and go, yeah, I guess we're no different. Dad, is there anything we can do? Yeah, you could, you could come clean. Uh, besides that, <laughs> besides really confessing the secrets that I have, is there anything else I could do? No, 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 that's the option. But God, no, no, not that. Like, is there anything else that I could do to try to deal with what's really going on in my life? No. You got to deal with what's really going on. Come clean. None of them come clean. None of them says, Dad, I know it's going to be a hard conversation. I'm so sorry. But Dad, you kind of did it. 
You're the reason that this happened. If you hadn't given him that robe in the first place, we might not be in this situation. We hate him. You know we hate him. You're kind of at fault in it, Dad. And we try to take matters in our own hands and deal with the problem. And we didn't really want to kill him because we're, you know, we know know he's our brother and we wanted to clear our conscience. We just sold him. Not one of them came clean. The greatest cover-up of all time, all 10 of them. I don't know about Benjamin. He probably wasn't in on it. But the oldest 10, all in it, and none of them came clean. And if you want joy in your life, if you want peace in your life, if you want fulfillment and God's blessing and God's plan to be a reality in your life, you've got to stop covering up whatever's going on in your life. You've got to stop pretending. You've got to come clean. Because either you'll cover it up or you'll confront it. And if you don't confront it now, it's coming out one day. And so be proactive to deal with it now So you don't have to go through 20 years of grief like this family. 20 years of mourning and guilt and shame and dysfunction. Cut it out now. Deal with your sin now or it will destroy your life. And not just your life, but people's lives around you that you love the most. And so there's a meanwhile in verse 36. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. He makes his way into a royal family as a slave. And it's the beginning of the redemption process that we'll walk out for the next 12 chapters. And there's a meanwhile here, and I love that there's a meanwhile in Scripture because I don't know what cistern you're in. I don't know what pit you found yourself in where you think your life is unraveling and it's not the way you ever thought it would go. I don't know what level of dysfunction exists because of your disobedience or the sin or the cover-up story that you have. I don't know the state of your marriage and the lies that are there and the water that's gone under the bridge for far too long and you haven't called it out. I don't know the distance that exists between you and your kids because you failed to have equal treatment of your kids. And you've been, as a father, you've been obsessed with success and money and being a provider that you've neglected your number one responsibility, which is affirmation and attention to your kids. I don't know how deep it runs. I don't know how hopeless you think that you're in. But what I do know is there's a meanwhile in your story. In Joseph's story, there's a meanwhile. God is working on your behalf even when you can't see it. Even when you don't feel it or experience it, there is something that God is doing in and through your circumstance and situation, whether it's self-inflicted or it's been inflicted upon you. I promise you there's a meanwhile. Have hope and know he's working it. Deal with it now. Be reconciled to him and find your joy and your freedom faster than what you could find by doing it on your own. And so I got three quick things as we finish up. You see, the best way to remove God's dream for your life is to focus on your dream. The best way to remove God's dream for your life is to focus on your dream. 17-year-old, arrogant, little teenager focused on his dream, his life that he thought God was promising him. And he focused on it to the point of where it caused all kinds of crazy in his life. And it wasn't until his dream unraveled before his eyes that now he's probably going to have the perspective of seeing God's dream become a reality in his life. You see, because I don't always see God through the windshield. I see God through the rearview mirror. Any of you? I don't always know what he's doing in the moment or what he's doing in the future, but I can always look back at my rearview mirror and say, God, thank you. You were so good. You were so faithful. 
And I'm grateful for the turbulence that I experienced. I'm grateful for the scars that I have because they show of just how good you really are and how powerful your grace and your mercy and your love was for me and how it shaped me and formed me into be the man that I am today. I'm grateful for my past. I'm not happy it happened. It hurts. I know. But in hindsight, I'm grateful. And God shapes us. So if you want to remove God's dream for your life, focus on your life and what you want. And the second thing is God's dream can become a reality when you lose the coat in the crowd. God's dream can start to play out in your life right here, right now, when you lose your coat, thinking, I'm all that. I got it all together. I'm the perfect one. I'm the chosen one. God's got a plan for me. And it wasn't until Joseph's coat was ripped from him that he realized he was desperate and hopeless and needed God more now than ever. And when you get to that point of shedding your coat, whatever it is, and your control over your life is where life is really found. And God's plan can become a reality in your life. And also when you lose the crowd, when you stop caring about what culture says, you stop caring about the world and the influence that they're having on you and and the tiptoeing that we're doing, and we would stand up as men and women of integrity, following Christ unashamedly with courage and boldness to do the right thing, even when the world says, no, do whatever you want. And if we would stand up and we would shed the crowd, God's plan, God's dream can become a reality. And the final point is this, is there's pain or there's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain. I know it, I've been there. I've had things in my past and in my life that I can look at and go, thank you. You shaped me, he formed me, and he's made me the man that I am today and I'm grateful for it. It's not pleasant in the moment, I know. It's not something to be excited about going, yeah, I know my marriage is on the rocks. I know that there's been lies, there's been deception to whatever degree, I know. And it doesn't look like it's gonna be a fun conversation. It's not. But I promise there'll be freedom and healing on the other side of it. I don't know what the relationship dynamic is with your family and with your kids. I'm not sure. But there's purpose in it. I promise you that. There's a meanwhile in your story. He'll take your mess of a life that you made or that's been dealt to you and he will make it a message of his redemption and his power and his grace and his mercy and his love if you will just shed your coat shed the crowd and fully give your life over to him and that's where true life is found church you see when you pretend you help no one and you hurt everyone when you pretend and, and are a fake and act like you've got it all figured out and you've got sins in the closet and you've got the cover-up stories and you're pretending, walking the walk like you got it great, your marriage is great, your relationship with your kids is great, you're, you're not spending too much time on the road at work or obsessed with your kids in sports or overwhelmed with the complexity of life and the impression of culture in the crowd, when you can hit pause and say no. God, I want what you want for my life more than I want what I want for my life. That's where life is. Because when you pretend, you help nobody. And you hurt everybody, including yourself. And I know there's hard conversations that need to be had in this room. You don't have to do them alone. We got a prayer team, seek prayer at the back. Come find me, the pastoral staff here. We'd love to walk it through with you. We got a whole group of people called Stevens Ministers that will walk this through with you. You don't have to navigate on your own. We're here for you. We want the best for you. 
That's why we have these kind of honest conversations in church because we want the best for you. I want the best for you. And so don't leave here without seeking out help if you need help. Because if you leave here unchanged, nothing will change. And you'll go back to the same old, same old. That's why we got life groups kicking off in a couple weeks. You need a group of people around you to encourage you and empower you to walk this life out of true faith. Decisions is ours. What are we going to do? Father, I pray that your spirit would just impress on our hearts the right thing to do at the right time. And that we wouldn't neglect and we wouldn't have indecisiveness. And because of that, we would not experience the grief and the consequences and the shame and the guilt. But we would stand up and do the right thing. Have the hard talk now. Shed the coat, shed the crown. Deny ourselves and follow you. Come clean, get real with what's really going on. And Father, that you would heal marriages right now in this room. You would reconcile couples. You'd reconcile families. You would empower us to be the men and women of integrity, to live out the life that you're calling us to. And we'd experience joy to the full, peace to the full, life to the full. Because we're willing to persevere through the hard things now and become everything that you created us to become. Give us courage and give us boldness, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.